This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Defendant by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 9 A Defense of China Shepherdesses there are some things of which the world does not like to be reminded for they are the dead loves of the world one of these is that great enthusiasm for the arcadian life which however much it may now lie open to the sneers of realism did beyond all question hold sway for an enormous period of the world's history from the times that we describe as ancient down to the times that may fairly be called recent. The conception of the innocent and hilarious life of shepherds and shepherdesses certainly covered and absorbed the time of Theocritus, of Vigil, of Catullus, of Dante, of Cervantes, of Aristo, of Shakespeare, and of Pope. We are told that the gods of the heathens were stone and brass, but stone and brass have never endured with the long endurance of the China shepherdesses. The Catholic Church and the ideal shepherd are indeed almost the only things that have bridged the abyss between the ancient world and the modern. Yet, as we say, the world does not like to be reminded of this boyish enthusiasm. But imagination, the function of the historian, cannot let so great an element alone. By the cheap revolutionary it is commonly supposed that imagination is a merely rebellious thing that it has its chief function in devising new and fantastic republics. But imagination has its highest use in a retrospective realization. The trumpet of imagination, like the trumpet of the resurrection, calls the dead out of their graves. Imagination sees Delphi with the eyes of a Greek, Jerusalem with the eyes of a crusader, Paris with the eyes of a Jacobin, and Arcadia, with the eyes of a euphist. The prime function of imagination is to see our whole orderly system of life as a pile of stratified revolutions. In spite of all revolutionaries, it must be said that the function of imagination is not to make strange things settled, so much as to make settled things strange, not so much to make wonders facts as to make facts wonders. To the imaginative, the truisms are all paradoxes since they were paradoxes in the Stone Age. To them the ordinary copy-book blazes with blasphemy. Let us then consider in this light the old pastoral Arcadian ideal. But first, certainly, one thing must be definitely recognized. This Arcadian art and literature is a lost enthusiasm. To study it is like fumbling in the love-letters of a dead man. To us its flowers seem as tawdry as cockades. The lambs that dance to the shepherd's pipe seem to dance with all the artificiality of a ballet. Even our own prosaic toil seems to us more joyous than that holiday. Where its ancient exuberance passed the bounds of wisdom and even virtue, its capering seemed frozen into the stillness of an antique frieze. In those grey old pictures a bacchanal seems as dull as an archdeacon. Their very sins seem colder than our restraints. 
All this may be frankly recognized, all the barren sentimentality of the Arcadian ideal and all its insolent optimism. But when all is said and done, something else remains. Through ages in which the most arrogant and elaborate ideals of power and civilization held otherwise undisputed sway, the ideal of the perfect and healthy peasant did undoubtedly represent in some shape or form the conception that there was a dignity in simplicity and a dignity in labor. It was good for the ancient aristocrat, even if he could not attain to innocence and the wisdom of the earth, to believe that these things were the secrets of the priesthood of the poor. It was good for him to believe that even if heaven was not above him, heaven was below him. It was well he should have amid all his flamboyant triumphs the never-extinguished sentiment that there was something better than his triumphs, the conception that there remaineth a rest. The conception of the ideal shepherd seems absurd to our modern ideas. But, after all, it was perhaps the only trade of the democracy which was equalized with trades of the aristocracy, even by the aristocracy itself. The shepherd of pastoral poetry was, without doubt, very different from the shepherd of actual fact. Where one innocently piped to his lambs, the other innocently swore at them, and their divergence in intellect and personal cleanliness was immense. But the difference between the ideal shepherd who danced with Amaryllis and the real shepherd who thrashed her is not a scrap greater than the difference between the ideal soldier who dies to capture the colors and the real soldier who lives to clean his accoutrements, between the ideal priest who is everlastingly by someone's bed and the real priest who is as glad as anyone else to get his own. There are ideal conceptions and real men in every calling, yet there are few who object to the ideal conceptions, and not many, after all, who object to the real men. The fact, then, is this. So far from resenting the existence in art and literature of an ideal shepherd, I genuinely regret that the shepherd is the only democratic calling that has ever been raised to the level of heroic callings, conceived by an aristocratic age. So far from objecting to the ideal shepherd, I wish there were an ideal postman, an ideal grocer, an ideal plumber. It is undoubtedly true that we should laugh at the idea of an ideal postman. It is true, and it proves that we are not genuine Democrats. Undoubtedly, the modern grocer, if called upon to act in an Arcadian manner, if desired to oblige with a symbolic dance expressive of the delights of grocery, or to perform on some simple instrument while his assistants skipped round him, would be embarrassed and perhaps even reluctant. But it may be questioned whether this temporary reluctance of the grocer is a good thing, or evidence of a good condition of poetic feeling in the grocery business as a whole. There certainly should be an ideal image of health and happiness in any trade, and its remoteness from the reality is not the only important question. No one supposes that the mass of traditional conceptions of duty and glory are always operative. For example, in the mind of a soldier or a doctor, 
that the Battle of Waterloo actually makes a private enjoy pipe-claying his trousers, or that the health of humanity softens the momentary phraseology of a physician called out of bed at two o'clock in the morning. But although no ideal obliterates the ugly drudgery and ideal of any calling, that ideal does, in the case of the soldier or the doctor, exist definitely in the background, and makes the drudgery worthwhile as a whole. It is a serious calamity that no such ideal exists in the case of the vast numbers of honorable trades and crafts on which the existence of a modern city depends. It is a pity that current thought and sentiment offer nothing corresponding to the old conception of patron saints. If they did, there would be a patron saint of plumbers, and this would alone be a revolution, for it would force the individual craftsman to believe that there was once a perfect being who did actually plumb. When all is said and done, then we think it is much open to question whether the world has not lost something in the complete disappearance of the ideal of the happy peasant. It is foolish enough to suppose that the rustic went about all over ribbons, but it is better than knowing that he goes about all over rags and being indifferent to the fact. The modern realistic study of the poor does in reality lead the student further astray than the old idyllic notion. For we cannot get the chiaroscuro of humble life so long as its virtues seem to us as gross as its vices and its joys as sullen as its sorrows. Probably at the very moment that we can see nothing but a dull-faced man smoking and drinking heavily with his friend in a pothouse, the man himself is on his soul's holiday, crowned with the flowers of a passionate idleness, and far more like the happy peasant than the world will ever know. End of chapter 9